If you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring Mr. Stone Gossett. Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast it's november so we made a promise that this november was going to be focusing on one specific year and that year is 1993 coming off of the versus album and going into that tour that was done for the latter part of october and all of november going into the first week or so in december as well 1993 is not a year that we've covered a whole lot. Usually we've done like the bigger shows, the first Vegas show, the Seattle shows. The other one that I can think of is Indio. We've done, and obviously from a couple weeks ago, Slims. So we've done all of the bigger notable stuff, add in Mudfest too. But we had never got around to like the meat and potatoes of what this tour was. And we picked four shows to discuss this November that I think have some cool little storylines to them. And I think you guys are going to enjoy what we bring to the table. Now, this one that we're starting off with, this is San Diego, the second night. We're going to talk a little bit about this, but it's kind of Ed's first time being in his hometown where his fame has elevated like this. So a little bit of a talking point. We'll talk about some things here and there about that era as well. So why don't we get into all of it right now? Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. What do you think of when you think of Pearl Jam in 1993? Ooh, fury, anger, rage. 
Versus was only a week old at this point, so they're going full bore on those new songs, and it's just things were starting to stretch out a little bit. You went from 91, 92, playing 10, 11, 12 songs, now they're doing 20 songs, got this whole new record to play, and just going for it. Like Every night was just balls to the wall, full bore, go until you can't go anymore. Yeah, that's pretty much what this era is, of course, and yeah. I think... A lot of people, what you know of Pearl Jam right now, you kind of know Ed as being the storyteller and this guy is going to entertain more than he's going to put on a persona. And I'm not trying to say he's putting on a persona in 1993, but he just is kind of who he is then. He likes that Pearl Jam is playing in front of a bunch of people, but he doesn't like the position that they've put in as these gods of the grunge seed, gods of rock and roll, that they are the top, the cream of the crop. And I don't think the rest of the band, especially somebody like Jeff, who said it a lot, I don't think that they wanted the fame to elevate so quickly. And I think a lot of what this year is, a lot of what this album is, is just dealing with all that and kind of getting all of the anger and all the rage, like you said, just out in the open and let people know how they're feeling. Yeah. There's the fuck MTV line later in this that we're going to get to. And we know that they deliberately chose not to make any videos, which was unheard of at the time for a band like them. But this week, the show is kind of the end of the, golden week of verses because the sales figures would come out very shortly after and we would learn that almost a million copies sold the first week and then it was on from there and that sort of changed everything at the shows too like you saw him mention that a little bit and you saw things get a little bit more pulled back and a little more angsty with that stuff in mind knowing that like kind of weighed on them but this show this week is kind of before that happens so you still get a little bit of the youthfulness and like not pre-fame because they were getting there but it it was before that kind of bombshell dropped about the, the million copies of versus sold in a week yeah it does talk a lot at this show like little bits but in between more songs than he usually did in 1993 and i think that you're right. After this, which we'll get into for the next three weeks, yep. after this, he won't say anything at all sometimes. He'll kind of make a comment here and there. Obviously, we know the next night that they play is going to be Indio, and you know, he does his talking there, and he has some things to talk about. But it's just more straightforward. It's like, all right, let's get our feelings and our emotions out there within the music, play songs like Blood and songs like go and that's how we're going to express it and i think for the time that's exactly what this fan base wanted they wanted pearl jam to just go because everybody else this fan base was feeling the same way they were teenagers or they were real early going into college they all felt that angsty rage they were all dealing with whatever shit with their families and school and all that like everybody had these problems and i think that's what really connected so many people to the band early on was that it felt like they were still kind of in the same position mentally as maybe some of the younger fan base was. But more than that, I think it's just kind of remembering where you were at a certain point and letting it all hang out at this moment. The Time Magazine thing, that definitely put a strain on things and the band refused to interview for them. So they had to kind of make up their own story about them being all the rage. 
And it just kind of came off as this whole thing and everybody's perception of Pearl Jam isn't what the band wanted to be. And that, I think, pissed them off. Yeah, it feels like things are being taken out of their hands. And even from the beginning, they were a band that wanted control over everything, the art, the music, every aspect, you know, the posters, every all the aspect of the band, they wanted to keep it in-house. And suddenly you can't do that. Things are spiraling kind of out of their control. And you saw that, you know, they would kind of go back in 95 and 96 and try to corral all that back in and build the fortress basically of Pearl Jam that, that got them through. But things are moving real fast. Well, we'll get into the set list in a little while, but I think since we have a little time here, Let's talk a little bit about, because every year around this time, if you guys have been following along, you know what happens. In November, December, we start preparing for our holiday party. And this is the fourth year that we've been doing it. If you've never heard of us doing this before, if you're newer to the podcast, then we welcome everybody to join up because it's not just a holiday party that we do. It's a gift exchange as well. So it's a little secret Santa. For those of you that have done secret Santas before, you will get matched with somebody else from the community who, just like you, cares about this band, loves this band, and loves being around these people. And you will purchase them a gift and somebody that matches with you, they'll purchase you a gift. Keep it to around like $30 or so. We don't want to break the bank with anything like this, but it's cool. I like that people are asking for Pearl Jam gifts or music related gifts, because then you see when we go on zoom and share everything, everyone's like, Whoa, you got that. Oh, cool. I've been wanting that or whatever have you, but it's a cool little thing to kind of bond with each other. And every year we play it up pretty big and and it's fun right now. If you are on Facebook, then head on over to the Pearl Jam podcast community. I have pinned it to the top of the page. There is a link there. Just read the rules. I'm not going to go over every single rule right here. I'll talk about one thing in just a second. But read the rules. Join up through the link. You have until the 12th to join up. So this episode is airing on the 8th. And on the 12th is the last day. So on the 13th, on Monday, you'll be matched with somebody that you'll be gifting with. And... All you got to do is like create a little wish list for yourself and put it together and somebody will see it and they'll send and and then everybody gets together. It's going to be the Zoom party on December 14th. So we're all going to get together over Zoom. Yeah, I know Zoom is kind of an old hat thing, but look, it still works for this. We're from all different parts of the country in the world, so it still works. What we usually do on a Zoom party outside of opening all our gifts and everything like that is we have some live performances come in. We sometimes get to talk to people. Last year, we were privileged to talk to Richard Stuverud that talked all about the experience of playing in Oakland last year. And that was just wonderful. And he was more than happy to do it. So maybe we'll be working on a couple guests. Who knows? Who knows what we got in store? Maybe but, I'll break out the ukulele. Again? You never know. Again? Well, <laughs> that John, was the guitar. It was the guitar last year. That was guitar? Okay. Yeah. So what ukulele songs do you have? Are you doing like a Your True or something? I'm going to have to see what we got. I'm not going to spoil it now. Well, no, but I'm just saying, if you got a tease, then tease, you know? Oh, that, that is the tease. That's all I got right now. <laughs> no promises. Uh, 
Well, also what we're trying to do this year, it's not fleshed out yet, unless I have it fleshed out by the time you hear this, is that we're trying to do a little bit of a game show thing. So if you're interested in joining up on a game show, it'll be one of those branded game shows. You think of like a Jeopardy type thing, but it's not going to be Jeopardy. A game that we all know, but we're going to put our own little twist on it. So if that's something you're interested in being involved with, then just keep up to date. If you're not on Facebook and you want to join in, then please send an email to live on four legs podcast at gmail.com and we will get back to you. We will send you all the information again. You'll have, what is it? Four days to sign up. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, the eighth, and we invite everybody and welcome everybody to do this. Cause it's just a lot of fun. It just brings the community together. You know, a lot of people saw the podcast community post where a lot of people were very excited that you're going to be breaking some very big Pearl Jam news. <laughs> Which I didn't tease at all. Got a little out of control. It did. And I I swear, for people that are listening right now, they're like, oh, you had us going the whole time. This was a ruse to trick us and all that. And I'm like, no, this is big news to us. People stayed up in Europe. (laughs) Yeah. They thought thought you were going to be like premiering a new single or posting (laughs) tour dates or... Somehow they think that we have insider information that we do not have. We're just fans, guys. That's wild to me. It's I, I, I'm flattered. I'm very, very flattered that so many people thought that we were going to announce a new album, a tour, or whatever. And it was never my intention to go out there and specifically troll people for this. Because that's not really who I am. I don't troll people like that. But boy... You guys were all falling for it, and I couldn't help myself. And I even wrote in one of the comments on one of those posts, and I said, guys, I have no insider information. Please stop. Nobody listened. And there were people that were real mad, because I the, the joke I played, it was like, okay, read off all the Creed dates that they had planned for their little tour thing that all they're doing. All these state fairs and... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the trailer park, yeah. cruise all places that smaller cities and stuff like that, that I never heard of before that Pearl Jam has definitely never played before. I knew it was fake when you said Miami, because Pearl Jam's not coming to the South. You never know with that. Florida will give them money to play. Let's not put it past them to go down there. But I believe it when I see it. Yeah. We got no information on that. You guys, I just wanted to just clear the air. Thank you for thinking so highly of this, that, You know, we are in a position to be a trusted source. But just like you guys, when we know, we know. So that's all I got to say about that. Just enjoy the podcast. That's all you got to do. There's nothing else to it. All right. Anyway, I think we can get into a set list here. So why don't we just jump in? So there's like... 3,000 people in attendance here going absolutely wild when they come out on stage. And this is the second night of two. The first night had the same amount of people, same place, this Civic Theater, small in, in San Diego. And by all means, Pearl Jam could have decided to play big stadiums or big arenas, basketball and hockey arenas, but they were like, no, we want to keep things more intimate. And it seemed like for half of the dates... 
that they were able to get for the 1994 run that they did. It seemed like half of them were kind of in places like this, and the other half were more in 15,000, 13,000 capacity places. But this is where they thrived in 1993. They thrived in front of the more close-knit crowd like this, that they felt like they could see everybody's faces and kind of attach the show. Like, individual people are going to be shouted out during this show. Yeah, stadiums are so kind of bland and faceless. It's like there's that gap, like there's the band and then it's like the show. And if you're in the back, you're not really connected to the show. They want to feel that connection with everybody. Playing theaters like this is a good way to build that up and playing two nights. You're still going way up from the clubs they were playing in 1991, 1992. You're more than probably tripling capacity at least but you're still you still have that feel of it where it doesn't feel like a big dumb rock show like Aerosmith or something I want to mention too like they had one of the coolest opening bands here American Music Club opened up so if you really want to get the feel for this go listen to some American Music Club before you listen to the podcast get the feel for that just one of the greatest bands I remember on the rock line Jeff kind of teased it like oh the, the band that's going to be opening up for us this album's called Everclear and Mercury and I was like that's American Music Club they're awesome I'm a really cool band if people want to check them out. Never got their due. Now, 1993 is going to be a lot of Dave Abrazea stock here. And we're going to get it very early on. We're going to get it in the middle. We're going to get it at the end. So get ready for a lot of Dave talk. And it's going to start with release. saying with Dave A before, when he comes in on this, that snare sound is really snappy and throughout the entire song, you can feel a very heavy presence from this. This song is elevated whenever the drums decide it to be elevated. Like, the guitars can go and soar and they can feel majestic in that manner, but it picks up if the drummer decides to elevate it. And Dave was very hard-hitting especially 1993 where it's like okay now i got an album under my belt with these guys he was able to kind of be more himself and he wanted to turn this band into like more of a heavier rock band which that was kind of one of the reasons why they parted ways that it was just kind of a difference in style and in some way it worked in some way it didn't but due to that and due to that sound in the song This song is extremely triumphant while being also kind of in your face, which is not the standard from the song. This song can be very triumphant in parts, but like 
the heaviness in which Dave plays becomes unbelievably powerful. And even listening to the bootleg, you feel every single hit. Again, everything comes together and you're getting a real inspired version. Yeah, I think his confidence was at an all-time high on this little run of shows here. This version of release, I thought it had a really good kind of push and pull tension to it. And a lot of that comes from Dave being able to drive that and bring it back and then push it. Like you said, he's very powerful, but he's also known for being very busy and really hitting those cymbals and adding lots of little flourishes and stuff. But he really does a good job here of just holding it down and knowing when to like let that tension build in the song and then let it break and then push it back. And that, of course, sounds fantastic on it as well. Great performance. Great way to start you out. The crowd is really into it. They're going to really be into everything and who can blame them? So Ed's going to actually address them for a second or two. And he says, hey, so everyone, it's nice to have you here. It's nice to be here. We picked this little place to play. We thought that it might be a good little place to see music or a good place to hear it. So just get comfortable. Don't hurt one another. You got your own space. Let's go. So the two spark plugs that are going to follow up on that are going to be Animal and Why Go. Animal... And I think we're thinking about the last couple of weeks when we did Slims and what that animal was like and the idea that Mike Solo was going to continue to build and continue to get better and figure out an identity over time. I think this is really good here. It's not the exact sound that you know you get night in, night out whenever you hear animal nowadays. But what he was working with it, he ripped right through and it made this song just, oh, getting towards the end of it. That just ripped things to shreds. And Ed, his vocals in this aren't terribly over the top. He would kind of build some of those moments where they're very gravelly. It sounded like he's waiting for his moments at the show. And when he gets to those moments, he's going to nail them. But it's not like if he played Blood in a very early portion of the set and went all out there and had nothing left. Ed had everything in his arsenal on this show. Yeah, and I love Animal coming out of release as well, being the first versus song of the night. I mean, you go back two months prior to the MTV Awards where this song kind of came out of nowhere and exploded. And I think they're still kind of riding that at every show. Like, we have to play this early. If not the first versus song, then going to be right after Go in the set. And, yeah, coming out, Animal at number two, after release especially, you know, this crowd after that tension is, like, ready to boil over, and then Animal comes in and Mike just tears it apart. This is quite the one-two punch for 1993. There's a point Ed's doing these little this kind of thing. I don't know yeah. if it's like a jarhead marine type thing or Artings like... kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, I kind of equate it to like a football grown or something, but he's getting into it. He's having fun with this. But why go to another one, Presence with Dave A. That one stands out in that facet. And Ed screaming out, holding out that clone line. That sounds really good. And again, these versions are commanding a lot of power. And Mike, again, is channeling all of it in a solo, just really flashy rips right through it and throughout the first three songs they feel like an impenetrable force why go is so fast on this one dave starts it off he's like the versus era has begun and these 10 songs are changing yeah why go is just rocket powered on this 
So right before Jeremy, Ed, real quick, you gotta live, live long enough to regret dying. Hmm. I wonder if that has any connection within Cryptic. Jeremy. Cryptic. Yeah. So, yeah, Jeremy, River Mirror kind of packaged together here. I don't know if you notice in the second verse of Jeremy, but Stone has a very distinct sound from a note that he's kind of bending. Did you notice that? It sounded so different for Jeremy. Hmm. No, but I noticed when they get to kind of the hey part, the band surges really, really well. You can tell they are pushing that part later on, but I didn't hear anything from Stone. That's a good catch. Yeah, Ed is really strong on the who, who, like he's going off on this and then belting the woes and everything. Again, another one with so much force. A lot of the influence comes from Dave. So, you know, I'm going to toss this and he doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to toss this to Javier. Because at this time, I didn't think to do Jeremy, but I think we're going to do Jeremy. We're going to call an audible right here and we're going to toss to him because this was interesting. And I think you guys need to hear it. Just something that you don't hear from Jeremy very often. So, look, I can't explain it better. You're going to get the guru on this. Guru means master. So, let's hear the master's take. Hey, Randy. Hey, John. Hey, everyone in the podcast. So, ooh, 1993. Well, there's actually quite a few things that we can talk to. From my standpoint, for what I do for the podcast, sometimes it's a little challenging to find stuff since they were so new at that time. But there are still interesting things that you can kind of like analyze. So in this one for the San Diego show, Jeremy has a pretty unique thing. I was doing some research for what I understand, pedal boards and effects and all that stuff. It was very limited at that time by choice because they really wanted to crank up amps and everything. But in Jeremy Stone has a very unique tone to it. I don't want to say a fuss, but it sounds like he's using a fuss pedal and using like vibratos and like bending a little bit more notes it's very different in the way that jeremy's play now or like how evolved over time if you want to say it that way hint hint for you to listen to episode number three of the gear garage for the evolution of do the evolution that was a pretty fun one but yeah so i think it might be something related with in the way that the bootleg was recorded maybe the air pushing through the amps or the way that the microphone was set up to hear the recording, it might make sound the amp like that. I don't know. But I thought that it was a pretty unique thing just to start the conversation this week since they have never used any fuss pedals. Correction, there's one fuss pedal that it was used, but it's only for recording settings where nothing as it seems that the Fender Blender was used. Shoegaze, paradise pedal, super fussy and spacey. But yeah, we wanted to kick it off this week with that because it was something that you're not used to here and maybe we have to thank the person who recorded the bootleg because it make it sound very fuzzy thanks for coming in with that javier good job yeah, nice. 
And Javier has a little single out right now. If you are on Spotify or on Apple Music, search for Panamericana. And that is his project that he's been working on really, really hard for the last couple of years. And I really hope that you guys get to follow him on those platforms and, and get to listen to his song. His song is called La Distancia, D-I-S-T-A-N-C-I-A. And it's very, very good. It's, it's got a lot of spacey moments and he does a really good job like filling in texture and everything like that for the song. It's awesome and you know he's one of the best people that we know in this community and we just want to give him as much play as humanly possible and please if you're on either Spotify or Apple just follow him and get him more views get him more attention over there because this has been a project of his for a while now so just wanted to throw that out there so you guys can support him and you know what you might have heard that song in the beginning of this episode so if you like that then hopefully when he comes out with some more songs over the next couple months you guys will like those ones too all right let's get into river mirror now one of the things that i love about not just river mirror but river mirror is definitely a factor in what i'm about to say but just songs in general whenever ed you can't hear his lyrics or he comes in a little late you get an extension of the instrumental and i love hearing an instrumental whenever that happens which is not often and river mirror is one where ed's had a guitar problem before gets in a little bit late and he gets in a little bit late on this one it seems like he kind of stumbles through the first line or so but just listening to that come in and start the song and you're getting an extended version it's just so cool i know it's on most cases just an accident but it's like a little jam to start your song If any Pearl Jam song could hold its own as instrumental, it's probably Ruby Mirror, especially a live version. But it doesn't hold back. This version gets really good near the end as well. They really push it on the jam there. Not super extended because it's still early on. Maybe I think the 24th performance, but it's getting there. In these versions, it's all about the drive to get you to that end of the song, to get you to the big scream, to build you up with the bass. And it's just a big monster ending. And I think Mike is another point of interest here because he just does this screeching and bending note as they're starting to build more upward momentum towards the end when that roller coaster is about to hit home and one of the other things i thought about on this is that when you think about the last show that we did slims we talked a little bit about the comparison to how dave recorded the song and how he was kind of doing this little stop go sort of thing for the ending and it kind of felt a little broken up and not the intensity that we know River Mirror to be. And this one, it seems like after those 24 versions, he's really figured it out and he's on it and he hits it home and that kind of brings the song to another level and gives it another level of intensity. Sounds great. 
It feels like not all the instruments made it out alive, too, because I think Ed comes out and says, oh, nothing like a little destruction. Yeah, nothing like a little destruction to make you feel good. Nothing like 120 volts on the lips to make you want to do it. I wonder what happened there, because this well, is... Yeah, again, he probably got shocked from the microphone. Yeah. But I wonder if, if one of the guitars maybe didn't survive at the end. It sounds like that could have been the case. Unfortunately, this show has not aged great throughout all of the reviews and, and things like that. And I don't mean nobody likes the show, the show wasn't good. I mean that the information that we usually have on these sort of shows is limited on this. I think the information that you get from like Five Horizons and some of those places yeah. is that Ed said a couple things near the end of the set and that was it. But Yeah, that didn't one... start until like the last three songs, Five Horizons, yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's one thing that we're going to talk about later, I'll kind of tease you for right now, that wasn't on anybody's minds. We found it, and we'll get to talking about it when it comes time to talk about it. That's way later in the set, though. So, you got a little destruction, get that out of your system, and now you go into Go, but you hear in the background, you can hear Ed saying, and you kind of hear, like, the feedback that sounds like the first note to go. And Ed says, if you want to go into something else, then do it now. You could tell the band was about to rip into go. However, we have the benefit. This is one thing that we did have. We have the benefit of seeing the handwritten set list from this show. It was not supposed to go directly from Rearview Mirror into go. The song in between those two was Better Man believe it or not. It would have been the second time that they'd ever played it. And as you kind of heard on Slims, it's not fully fleshed out. It's somewhere in between what Bad Radio did and what Pearl Jam would eventually end up doing with it. And everybody knows that the second version was done in Atlanta, and that was kind of the one that brought the attention to people instead of Slims because everybody was listening to that Atlanta show. But imagine if they do it here. Does it change history a little bit? It's a whole couple months before you go on that 94 tour. Maybe some people get their hands on it. Maybe word spreads a little bit of like, hey, this is what they were doing. And I wonder if it was on the set list as kind of an ode to San Diego. And yeah. maybe the last time thinking about it, playing it with bad radio. Yeah, but you know what? I bet. If that happens, if it started to take off a little bit before they were ready, I think maybe it doesn't end up on Vitalogy and maybe he does give it to Chrissy Hind. Maybe it ends up on that Greenpeace compilation and it's just a footnote. Interesting. I was because kind of if, it, if it had gotten too big, that would have been the worst thing for the song, according to the band. You know, what we know about what they thought about it. If people had started to latch onto it and if it had gotten too big too soon, that would have shut them down on it, I think. Yeah, that sounds like the direction it was all going in. But like, I'm thinking of sort of this universe here where what if they play Better Man at the show and something sparks in their mind like, OK, we did that. And OK, that worked. And then Better Man becomes one of these songs in the same category as Whipping and Last Exit and Tremor Christ that were played a little bit in 1993. And then you got the other songs like Not For You and Spin a Black Circle and Corduroy all being played in 1994. I wonder if 
there would have been a possibility that they could have picked up on this and said, all right, let's see what else we have with it. But also, I think if that would have happened, then this version of Better Man would probably have been the one that we would have gotten. We would have never got what we have now if this version got more popular. Yeah, I can't see it. I mean, there's a world where they make a video for it and it's the band's biggest hit and it takes off and goes, but that's just not who they were. I don't know. It's it's so hard because like there are not many songs that bands have where they hold them back and that's such a unique thing almost to Pearl Jam that like you have this obvious hit song, Brendan O'Brien told them, No, we're not we're not gonna do that. When that one's not gonna be on this record. And it would have been a hometown thing, like maybe some people there. I mean, you're only looking at five years removed from bad radio. Maybe some people were there and would have remembered it and it would have been kind of their song. But yeah, it's so weird to think about. Well, as history knows, it didn't happen and they went to go instead. I wonder if that was a momentum thing coming off of River Mirror. It sure sounded like Go deserved to be there. And yeah, I, I think they made the right call, to be honest with you. I think that the way that history transpired, I wouldn't want it any other way. You do it one more time, get it on people's minds, and then Brendan O'Brien does the convincing for Vitalogy, and it becomes their song instead of Chrissy Hines. What do you think about this version of Go? Mike McCready just ripping it, similar to Animal. These early songs on Versus where it's just like, keep him in a cage all day and let him loose for this. Before going into Even Flow, we get Ed saying, This song is about somebody that I used to hang out with on 3rd and G. A little beginning of what the story would be that we'd all know from the home shows that he would tell about this homeless veteran named Eddie that he would befriend. And I believe that was in Seattle, though. So I wonder if he had another person in San Diego that because third and G seems like a local thing. So yeah, I some corner somewhere. Yeah. It could have been a conglomeration of people, different things for sure. Now this version of even flow is interesting. You know, my favorite thing to say on even flow lately is that the little solo fills in the second verse can kind of dictate where the solo is going. And he has a really, really good one in this. And it leads to a really nasty solo at first, but it's pretty quick. Like, he holds on to a note for what feels like eternity, and then after that, it kind of turns into more of like a reserved bluesy riff. And even with the bluesy riff, you get a little staccato that sounds pretty good. But that's the majority of what you're getting here. You get a little solo, but then you're really digging into the blues stuff. 
Yeah, it's kind of a 180 from what Go and Animal, where it's a little more funky, a little more rhythmic. Yeah, he's exploring some different things on this. It's not the full-fledged Van Halen solo. There's a great build getting back into the song, and once again, they are dominant, and their dominant presence prevails on this. There's, I'm going to use the word a lot in the show. So much force coming from that stage. We're going to get into Dissident and Daughter before getting into those. Ed is seeing something in the crowd. He's commenting off someone trying to say something. And I wonder, going back, if that was a little bit due to his, I guess, mood at the time and just kind of feeling a little bit more angsty and kind of having an attitude it shows. But apparently it seems like somebody tells him to smile. Kind of like one of those things when like guys on the street kind of hit on girls like you need to smile more and like that pisses them off. Like that kind of sounds like this, you know, he's like, yeah, yeah, fuck you. And then that was it. Look, as he's going to sing in a tag later, no one's going to change his world. So that is what it is. Dissident Daughter. Dissident is like the first change in tempo. And as you mentioned, you kind of saw that a little bit with a little bit of the bluesier stuff in Evenflow. But now we're getting into some of the more mid-level stuff. And there is the moment that happens on Dissident. We always hope for it, always try to look for it. And I guess this version is a good example of why Ed doesn't do it. This one, he tries to make that attempt to hit that high note at the end and go high instead of staying a little bit more speak song-ish. And he can't quite get there. I appreciate the try. And seriously, that's yeah. not like a haha, you couldn't do it. That's like a thank you for giving it a shot. He should be doing it then. And it's not often that he even tries. He doesn't I mean he completely lays off of it now, but yeah, I wonder how many times he actually made it. That dissident evolution episode is just yeah. creeping yeah. up on us. It'd be like a half hour episode, I think, but <laughs> no. No, no, we wouldn't do Dissident that dirty. We just wouldn't do it at all. I'm joking, everyone. What do you got on Daughter here? This is another one where Dave's take is so much different, but, you know, we got a little tag at the end here. What are you thinking about this? I love the way that Stone opens it up, just strumming with purpose, and like you said, the the forcefulness that's happening, just vigor, like... Stone comes out with a vengeance on this, and you can tell they're really pushing it right from the very beginning. Yeah, Daughter, it's interesting because I love early, early versions of the song. And then when you get to a little bit later where the tag really does become the story, it's just kind of, okay, we know what's happening in the version of Daughter and not too much strays from the norm. But it's like, okay, get to the tag, and then we can have a conversation. But no, you're right. In these versions of Daughter, it gets really intense in spots. And that is a lot from Stone and a lot from Dave as well. It has a really good motion to it. It has some purpose behind it, which 
is not always the identity of the song. It feels like when they play it now, way more of a pop song than when they were playing it back then. I, I like when it has this bite. I fully agree with you. Yeah, and then they go to the Young Man Blues, but not the Young Man Blues where it's going to go big on it, but just kind of the first part. That's an interesting choice, too. Yeah, interesting, because this song is just known for that. Like that is a riff that in that lead show that they did a couple years back, almost 10 years ago, that Mike, during the show, would play that riff like often. Like every. Yeah, live at Leeds, that's, that's where it became famous. Exactly. Now to hear it in kind of a moment, sort of getting a little spacey and downtrodden, it's definitely not the idea of what the song is, but the lyrics and Ed singing, it gets a really good reaction from the crowd. So it seems like they picked up on it, which is very cool, but not a tag they've done a lot at all in their history. Yeah. Packaging alive and once into this section here. The anthem sounds so good. Alive just felt massive. Again, I think a lot of it coming from Dave. Dave is able to make things feel bigger than they are or even feel bigger than other eras. And, and it felt big in 1992 as well, but I feel like it took another level of intensity once you got to 1993. And they were just locked in on this. Ed's peaking his voice every chance he gets, and it's not, again, an overly exhaustive screaming show, but he lets it all go. And then Mike does Mike things, and him and Dave have been synced up all night. We talk a lot about when Mike and Cameron get synced up and how great that sounds and how they kind of need that to blend together. But Mike and Dave were an excellent tandem in this era as well. I don't think that that can be discounted at all. Yeah, in case you're forgetting that you're listening to a Dave A version, there's all kinds of little flourishes and splash cymbals and extra little hi-hat things. This is where he really lets it run and goes off on the busyness and his arms moving fast as they can, trying to get all these extra little things in on this. Alive, it's like every two seconds he's throwing in something a little extra. Absolutely. And something that I guess wasn't done a whole lot at the time because it's more of a now thing, but Ed's doing some yeah chants at the end here. So when you get a version like this and you know everything's feeling good up there, Ed's going to feel it and Ed's going to display that to the crowd. So that was very cool. Once was not on the set originally, but they definitely needed to milk this momentum right here. Going from alive to black at this moment, after... Dissident and Daughter, I think would have been breaking it up a little bit too much. I think Once was awesome. 
I love when they get into this version. It doesn't happen a whole lot in 1992-1993, but little pieces here and there, there's this jam extension that happens after what the solo part is. And it's just so cool to look back on because it, it doesn't happen anymore. You ask the average modern Pearl Jam fan if they've ever heard an extended solo on once, and they'd probably say, what are you talking about? It just makes the song feel massive. gets to that part in the solo where it feels like it's gonna wrap up and then they make a choice like i'm sure they rehearse make a choice to like okay and we're gonna extend this now and they keep going for a couple extra measures ed does a little improv feels like a little bit of a preview of what's coming in a couple of songs but yeah this is very good when mike kind of goes off script and lets it run a little bit that's when it gets good now we're gonna get into black which ed mentioned we played the song last night and it felt pretty good so we're gonna try and do it again Another kind of 10-song change, as we kind of mentioned with the extension, is that when you get into the choruses of Black, you completely cut everything but Stone's guitar. You get those little cymbal flourishes from Dave A, but everything cuts out but Stone in this, and it kind of brings a sense of warmth to the song and kind of a vulnerability that gets displayed. Once they start to build into like the meat of the song where it truly begins to soar, it goes off 
and Ed's doing everything from Unplugged on this, from extending the voice to doing the We Belong Together. Everybody brings their A game on this version of Black. Yeah, I love this We Belong Together. A lot of times it feels a little bit like he's being a little bit more wistful nowadays, but this one, you tell he's still got some fury behind it and still putting some passion into it. This is a real nice surprise to get We Belong Together here. Really makes the song. So I don't know why we didn't really mention this in the beginning, but this is the reason why I had always been thinking about this show. I kind of mentioned that at the end of last week's episode. So this is going to be an improv that has been known over time to be called Hold Me. first heard this about five years ago maybe in like the first few months of the podcast and i heard this on serious radio and i just said to myself because listening to all the improvs and knowing like fuck me in the brain that would come the next show and some of the other ones from this era and later and just kind of getting to know these things as you move along and, and learn and discover and hearing this immediately i thought well what album were they trying to put this song on because this is fully fleshed like anything that you'd ever heard listening to the beginning of this you're gonna groan if i say this but it's almost sounds like the beginning to detroit rock city in a way where like they're kind of do these hammer-ons a little bit and that's sort of the progression of what this song is and then the hammer-ons start to become very hypnotic Especially when Dave comes in, it starts to get a little bit heavier and starts to drive and feels really super fleshed out. It's a loose connection to make, but I'll give it to you on this one. But that's right, a lot of times that's how this stuff happens. You know, somebody does a riff of something and someone else picks up on it and takes it somewhere else. And 
they definitely had the capability to do that. Is this one of their best improvs? Maybe next to the one from Phoenix in 1995. That was amazing. Where does it stand? I think it's definitely top five. I mean, there's been so many good ones, but this one really picks up. I mean, there's a moment where he rhymes about with benefit of the doubt, and you're like, oh, he just brought it home. He just found it. And then the band kind of picks up on it, and they really start pushing it. And it sounds like it could have been something that they had worked up for sure. Like, I think we have everything that was done for verses. I think we know all that stuff now. But if they had stuck with this, I mean, who, who knows? It could have been something very, very cool. You know, I'm going to call another audible. I didn't love the choices that I made in the set to give Javier. So I'm going to give him this one. I think that he has to talk about this one. So it's another audible. I'm sorry. Don't mean to pour all this on you, but I'm going to pour all this on you. So talk about this because I think the people want to hear it. This is another interesting one. I think I've heard this probably two times in my life. This will be the second one, but it's kind of fun to hear how much they have improved to doing this jams and improvising, especially if you analyze or compare moments like this in between 1992 and like this show in 1993. Although I love the groove of it, it's so loose, I might be crazy, but I can hear the song being maybe selected for a gigaton or something like that. You're probably like, what are you talking about, dude? But that riff that Stone is playing at the beginning, because I think it's Stone who's doing like, well, it might be a little bit of a rip off to Kiss. That's different. But would you guys imagine that being a loop, maybe like in the same atmosphere or a piano, like, I don't know, Dance of the Clairvoyance, and then kind of like getting that. I don't know. It will be interesting to see that. I Probably they will never play it again. But it will be very interesting to hear that with a little bit more technological advance, uh, like loops or maybe like a looping piano or even a sample in the band playing over that to keep in that groove alive. But I think the main focus point is how much they have evolved as players in just less than a year and a half. And now they can pull off stuff like this and execute it perfectly fine and have that looseness of that groove. That's very hard to obtain. So I think it was a good talking point for this week. He's a trooper. He's the man. We'll get to him one more time in this show, but... Boy, he gets paid the big bucks. Mm-hmm. Just love from you and I. That's the big bucks. That's all you need, right? That's what we get paid in salary. Uh, yeah, he's going to have a lot of questions after this episode. I have no answers. Moving on. Fast Porch. Excellent, excellent. There's a lot of stuff to talk about here. We get a Voodoo Child tag in the solo, and... Overall, this is just such high energy and right from the start, too. Like, there's no building into it. It feels like they are heavy and they're like digging in right away and bringing you almost 1992 versions where they kind of lead to that big moment where you kind of know the visual. Like, when Ed starts walking on scaffold or starts doing something crazy, like, they always go into that same riff. But here, they're not building into any of that at all. They're just going for it right away. Oh, yeah, it's just wild chaos from the very beginning, especially, I think, 
we're kind of in this run of 10 songs here. You mentioned we had hit reach kind of the mid-tempo part of the set, starting with this and kind of going through black. But then I think that improv, especially at the end of it, when it picks up, I think that really boosted the energy on stage and really started pushing them. And I think that bleeds into Porch a little bit because it's just full bore. I kind of teed it up before there is an Across the Universe tag on this. And this is something that he was doing a little bit at the time. He was doing this song in places like Daughter and places like Porch. And he'd do it, looks like, only six times overall. So not very often. But I think there are a couple moments that were key moments that people remember him doing this in. And then there's a little bit of an improvised moment. I really thought that this was a song, too. Because he's saying something, time to realign your body and your mind. And I thought that that was a piece of tearing or something like that. Mm. It just seems so legit. Yeah, he would do it again in Indio on Daughter. So that's definitely something that he was thinking about that he had worked up. We know some of the improvs that ended up on Vitalogy, maybe working up some things for that. But how about the week that the Beatles have had? A good time to do a, a Beatles tag here. It's very weird. I never thought that Beatles would have like a... A 90s 2000s indie sound but here we are yeah. wasn't a huge fan of it i'll just throw that out there yeah it's, it's not it's not the best but hey fine and anything that you're gonna get from the beatles 60 years later take it well this song ends on a fucking high note because ed must have done something here again we don't have the recollection from this show that maybe we have on some other shows in 1993, but the crowd is erupting for certain things during this solo. And I wonder if he like went up to a speaker or if he ran off stage into the crowd. It's probably not like a big time stunt sort of thing, but there's something that the crowd is reacting to that they saw that is something big and they were red hot for it. So Ed letting it all out on the end of this too just some furious furious screams how does that not fire you up for what's to come next which is i think like five or six more songs just fantastic at the end here all right we're in the encore let's pause for station identification and talk about some things i think this will be a nice little patreon break here we have one new patron this week and I really hope that it's not a bot because reading the name kind of makes me think, oh, okay, I don't know what those 001s at the end are there, but I apologize to whoever this is that did join up, and we would love to hear from you so we don't have to call you a bot anymore. But the name that we have is EMV0001. That just became a patron. AI is joining Patreon now. (laughs) (laughs) Look, if AI's wallet is open to it, I'm open to it. Yeah, yeah. I will not be picky on this. No, but thank you, EMV, whoever you are. That's great. I wonder what AI would pick for their episode request. If anybody has access to that stuff. They they would pick that Metallica show that the poster (laughs) is for. Hey, don't spoil things for the future, man. Right, right. And let's thank one other person. Let's thank Matt Lang that just increased his donation from the giga leg tier to the horizon leg tier that is awesome we really appreciate that 
and we can't wait to get to his episode. He's already requested one, which is Vancouver 2005, which should be a lot of fun. We love that 2005 oh, year yeah, and the Canadian, Canadian run. It's great. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's another one that got requested that should be up next year too. And Vancouver, we're actually going to do after this run of 1993 shows, we're going to do Vancouver from 2013. And that's kind of an important city for the Pearl Jam in a way. The Seattle of Canada. Yeah. Yeah, I think it needs to be kind of talked about, and that kind of needs to be respected. And we have not done a Vancouver show yet. So it's way past time. Matt, thanks for that. Thanks for increasing your donation. And if you want to be like the people that we just mentioned today or the bots that we just mentioned today, then head on over to patreon.com slash live on four legs and donate. You see... Every little penny counts, everything helps, and it goes into what we're going to do on tour, being at the sites and stuff like that, and putting together events and things like that. It just helps all that cause, and it helps us put together our website and fund that, and anything that you guys can contribute is so helpful to all of this, and really, that's why we give you as much back as we can. There are going to be new episodes coming out pretty soon. That gear garage that we had been talking about with Javier, we are getting that out. I think he's going to be done with it by the time that this episode airs. So hopefully it'll be a next week thing. And we're going to be doing the indifference evolution. We'll talk about that a little bit later and a couple other things here and there. I think I released Dakota's profile finally earlier this week. So a lot of stuff is going to be happening. just needs a little bit of time to develop. And I hope you guys understand that because it's sort of a chaotic time in my personal life right now, moving from state to state. So it's coming, though. Trust us, it is coming. Whether it comes sooner rather than later, can't answer that right now. But you can expect this stuff in the not-so-distant future. So either join up on the bonus leg tier for a dollar a month or join up on the giggle leg tier for $5 a month. That'll get you an episode request. And joining up on the horizon leg tier will get you an episode request and a profile episode as well. You can also go on the app, search for Live on Four Legs and join us there. Or you just go to liveonfourlegs.com and press the become a patron button right at the top. Now, John, let's talk about the website for two seconds. 2012 is done and up. Yeah, that was a lot of fun to put together going through and got another year up there. Hope everyone gets a chance to go check it out. Some really good shows that a lot of people you guys worked really hard on and looking forward to getting into 2011 soon. Love it. More Concertpedia stuff, the better. And we're going to work on it for the next couple months and try to make that a more featured part of our website where people will be able to access them a little easier and we can focus and feature some of the writings that people have done because we don't want to discount and discredit what they do at all. These Concertpedia entries deserve to be read and something that will happen later in this encore that we didn't know we wouldn't ever discard that information from any of the Concertpedia entries. So that's all that I'll say about that. But let's get back into the rock here. We got a couple of songs left. Ed says, thanks for waiting. Took us a minute to figure out what we wanted to play. And I don't think that we've played this one in a while. It's certainly not a song made for 1993, but 
when you have it on the album, it's part of it, and you're going to want to get it out there no matter what. So this is the 11th performance of Elderly Woman Behind a Counter in a Small Town. And the first thing you notice is that we have an electric guitar on this. That, for you modern-day Pearl Jam fans, you listen to that and know this is full acoustic from probably the last 20 years. Maybe even further than that. Maybe it goes all the way back to like 1998. But this is a full-on electric version of this song. I'm going to throw that to Javier right now because I want him to talk about the electric guitar here and how he thinks that impacts the song. last one for this week is small town and <laughs> i'm just laughing because while i hear that this recording is just seems so weird that they were playing this song with electric guitars and actually i'm pretty sure that there was no volume pedal involved to it because that funkiness of the instrument that you can hear in this recording is just because the amps are so freaking loud and they're so gain stacked that like you gotta roll the volume down <laughs> almost to zero just to make the guitar sound clean Although I think it's pretty cool to hear that maybe with electrical instruments or electric guitars, it kind of takes a different direction. I think it makes the song with a little bit more pace. Well, day one drums is gonna always add something a little bit more extra to this era related with this version of this song. But I think it gets closer to what we know as the original version in the Versus recording. But again, I was just laughing because I cannot even think how loud those amps were for those guys on stage but yeah it sounds very very honky there's no technical elements besides the fact that the amps were probably close to 10 or 8 i don't even know how loud they were but basically you roll the volume down to a point where you clean up the instrument but at the same time your treble work is going to suffer because it gets very mid-range and honky and that's why the guitar sounds like that in this version all right hope you guys like that and thank you javier for another great segment right there and again his gear garage i'm hoping to get out this week it is going back to the do the evolution evolution episode and kind of picking some of those talking points that we talked about and can't wait for that so this is interesting because obviously this is not what the band was really accustomed to doing at the time there are elements I enjoy about it, but overall, I think it's kind of messy. And I think a lot of that has to do with the usage of electric and also Dave kind of doing a little too much on this because we are used to this song having such a warm tone and kind of feeling anthemic and then sort of in spots feeling like a sing-along. And this just kind of felt like a garage song 
in a way, and that's not really definitive of what the best versions of the song are. Oh yeah, Dave is riding that hi-hat non-stop. It's almost to the point of being distracting. Right from the very beginning, it's so different. It even takes a second to be like, wait, this is a small town? It's the chords for a small town, but is this a small town? And yeah, we've heard electric guitar on small town before, but it still has that kind of Springsteen-esque feel to it. But this is a lot more moody, a lot darker, and yeah, just a completely different feel to the song. It's very, very strange. Yeah, plotting pace a little bit, too. That was kind of interesting. But, I mean, they're nowhere close to figuring it all out on version 11 of 491. Yeah. Let's give them a break. All right, let's get whipping into here. Give me this song with the groove. Oh, just like this. Now, whipping has been played almost as many times as Small Town to this point, and you can tell why. Like, this fits in with what this era is. That pogo riff that's gone up, I love that, keeping that energy high. And Dave has a filthy fill in this that I absolutely love too. Night and day from last week's version. Can't state the obvious more, but Ed's shattering his vocals in this yet again. Just excellent before befuddling a lot of the crowd too, I'm sure, that are like, oh, this isn't from the new record, what is this? They did play it the night before, but they're probably still a little confused. I don't think we've ever gotten an answer as to why this wasn't on Versus. I mean, obviously with Better Man, we know, but Whipping would have fit right in on Versus. I wonder why they held it back. I don't think we've ever gotten a real answer on that because it would fit right in. Maybe just too much of that sound, but oh goodness. I mean, a song that, yeah, like I said, this is already the ninth time being played since Slim's. The record wouldn't even be out for another year. They were saving this for the end of the set a lot too, like encores. Here's something a little extra for you before we get out of here, just to show you we can still do it. I mean, yeah, Fast and Furious all day. All right, Ed's going to talk. This is one of the things that we did have written on Five Horizons, and he said, We've run out of ideas. What would you like to hear? Glorified G? All right, turn on the lights for a sec. I want to try something. I had sushi before the show tonight, so I got this big ball of rice that I kept. I'm just going to see what happens. And then he tries and chucks this ball of rice into the balcony. And it does not stay as a ball. Not sticky rice. It's not sticky rice. He said, that ain't minute rice. It was supposed to stick together. So, yeah, you try things like you tried on Dissident. Maybe they work, maybe they don't. But it's 1993. Who the hell cares? Glorified G and Sonic Reducer. Glorified G was a little sloppy here, I thought, and it kind of makes up for it by letting his voice go all out, but it was just a little off to me. It is a little weird that it's not packaged with Daughter, which seemed to be mm-hmm. what they were doing at the time. There's the the upright bass and everything like that, and it, it makes sense that Ed was talking about Sticky Rice. He needed to get a, give him a second to get the bass out there, but... Yeah, the yeah. request, so they wasn't wasn't planned. Yeah. But yeah, he lays off the steal the heart from your neck part. It right? just does the vocalizing there already. I wonder like when that started, what the idea for that was, because it's yeah. it's there's no rhyme or reason for that either. It's just interesting when he decides to sing here we go instead of can feel your heart from your neck. Yeah. 
Before we get into Sonic Reducer, Angie is noodled. And then Ed says, I have to make one realization here. We love every one of you equally, but there's a few people up here in the front row tonight. They would never survive in a pit. And of course, you're going to get into Sonic Reducer, which is a mosh pit type of song. Going back to what you were saying before. drums are really popping out on this one and this is a blistering version of Sonic Reducer. Oh yeah, Dave's machine gunning those rolls in there. We're getting to the make shit up part of the show here and love when Sonic Reducer shows up. So, this is the moment where we had no retelling of this beforehand and actually John, you and I were listening to different bootlegs of this show and there have been a couple of copies that have gone out there that have been broken up, that don't have every song on it, that have pieces of songs. I think Indifference in one of the bootlegs is cut short. And for some reason, the end of this little part, which is so important to what the story of the next song is, Bob O'Reilly, that you completely lose a huge part. Like, no one knew for years that this happened. And it was a complete surprise to me when Ed said anything. And I happened to be listening to a boot that I got from, I guess it was Fred Evans that did a more recent mix of this that sounds really good. But let's start from the beginning. So Mike asks what's going down. Somebody's camera was taken by security and then Ed interrupts and says, I don't know about cameras, but they can bring tape recorders in anytime you want. He's like, did you know that? I always bring mine. And Ed's going to introduce a special guest. This is the part that no place has ever reported this that I know of. Says you may not know of him. If you're not from San Pedro, this is Mike Watt. Like, how does this get missed? I love everything that everybody has done before us. But man, how do you miss Mike Watt? Yeah. I bet probably that no one from Five Horizons was there because their review doesn't really start until Encore. And I bet they got like a secondhand review of it. Maybe someone later on the phone phoned in the set list. I wonder if they just didn't know. Because like Mike Watt was not in the zeitgeist in 1993. Like Firehose is still around. They weren't really a big thing. The Minutemen were almost 10 years out from being a band at that point. Ball Hogger Tugboat wouldn't happen for another couple of years. So it's not like Mike Watt shows up and everyone's like, oh my God, it's Mike Watt. There's this connection. Like someone might've just thought it was just some random person. Maybe they missed that part of the show, but yeah, very strange. And I wonder too, if he had already been out playing on Sonic Producer, because that's right up his wheelhouse as well. I wonder if the, he had already come out and, and played on that. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that. Yeah, I don't know about that, because it seems like when Ed introduces him, it feels fresh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just strange, because, yeah, Sonic Reducer is right up Mike Watts' alley song. It seems like he would be way in on that. Another thing to keep in mind is that I think Five Horizons started up in 1995. So a show like this is them going back and getting the information and playing telephone with that. And obviously way less than what we have now, 
not really a lot of bootlegs to go off of. If there are, then they are not distributed in the way they're distributed now, and people might not have remembered all of the facts, all the information, and with the bootleg that you have, I'm going to guess they listened to that, they would have never known. Because on your bootleg, they completely cut him mentioning Mike Watt out. Yeah, weird, strange. So you kind of do hear Mike Watt and Ed talking in the beginning here. And you can kind of hear his chuggy, sludgy bass in this. Like, you know the distinct Mike Watt sound. Like, it's fitting in with this. But also, this is interesting because it's very effect-heavy on the guitars. And I wonder if that intro where they're doing that is kind of their way of trying to interpret the original. That's not something that had continued on much after this. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Watts there, the mix doesn't exactly highlight him, but you mostly hear him in that chaotic build-up to the last chorus. I love when... Look, the song usually kind of ends after a certain point and kind of goes crazy, but they go back into another Teenage Wasteland chorus before actually ending the song, and that was kind of what they did with this early on, but I love that. I love when they did that, and then Dave on this, his snare is just popping yet again, and it's a good performance. It's just very weird that Mike Watt, it was unknown information at the time. Yeah, it's, that's, ooh, that, again, not on the radar in 1993. But yeah, it's very, very cool. They just, maybe he was, just called him up, like, what? We need you. So, yeah, just get, get in the van and go. Live on Four Legs Mystery Machine has done it again. Ah, Patterson's on the back for that one. All right, one more to go, Encore 2. It says, thanks for going through whatever you had to go through to get your tickets. Sure, it was impossible to get tickets to this. Only 3,000 when they're on top of the world. We'll just have to play a full week next time. It's been really great to be in the area, and to get out in the water every day was really nice. So do us a favor and take care of the water while we're away so it's here when we're back. This song is for some of the surfers and activists that were invited down. That's how we're saying goodnight. Indifference is going to close your show. And... We're in the thick of things with Indifference. We're doing some research, obviously, as I mentioned before, with the Evolution episode. And one of the things that is the huge talking point is that this was the closer for 1993-1994. Pretty much majority of the time. And it just kind of occurred to me when listening to this version, I wonder if the band ever considered putting this in the middle of the set. Because... Most of those versions, if not all of the versions that you hear, get enormous crowd response. The crowd knows it's going to be the end of the night and like they want to have one final moment, but it's not a song that you would have expected this early to have this much of a buzz on. So I wonder if they had ever considered putting it in the middle and if they ever did that, if they would have gotten the same reaction if this was just like a song after daughter yeah i don't think so i think it's just so different and it's so moody that they don't really have anything to lead into it or to come back from it would be such an outlier early on that like it and it obviously closes the record so people are used to hearing it there and it seemed to fit but yeah right away i mean obviously ledbetter wasn't in there really in the rotation yet 
So this was the one that they were using as the go-to. Here, the guitar. Now, the guitars are not a huge factor in indifference very early on in this lifespan. But you hear a little bit of like a western twang in this at parts that sound kind of cool on this. And it sounds like, for the time, like a very full version of indifference. This is very good and the crowd just gives it its due. Very, very cool. Okay, we have done it. We have done the show. Now it's time to pick our moments. So, John, please begin for all of us. All right. Number three, I'm going to say once. My number two is release. And my number one is hold me improv. Yeah, I got two of those in mind. I'm going to go number three, porch. You know, number two, once, and hold me improv, number one. There we have it. All right, let's get to the rating on this. Yeah, this is tough because it's very consistent throughout the whole time. It's not like a 2000s era show where you're going to have this build and you're going to build these moments and you're going to go. It's more just go, go, go nonstop. But that said, it's very, very good. There's some excellent parts to it. Uh, I'm going to give this a nine. Yeah, that's kind of where I am, too. You kind of said it like there aren't any builds, there aren't any, you know, waves crashing or anything like that. And I think that's always what kind of detracted me a little bit from 1993 shows is that it's hard to find themes throughout. And I always like to find themes and storylines throughout the night. And storylines can be within what the performances are, but this show doesn't necessarily have like a running theme throughout. Like Ed, only very little mentions that, hey, I'm back in my hometown kind of deal. It's just a little bit here and there. But it's a really good show. All the performances are pretty awesome, except for like one or two. I thought might have been a little bit messy, but that doesn't mean anything. I enjoyed listening to this, and I'm hoping that as we go along that the other 1993 shows will impress me as much as this one did. So I'm right there nine for this. Okay, guys, so next week we are going down and we're doing one of the New Orleans shows. We're going to do night two of a three-night stay at the Uno Lakefront Arena, and these were pretty important shows. There's going to be two massive talking points, but there's going to be one talking point that's outside the show that we have to get to, and we're working on something to kind of see if we can add a little bit more flair to the story. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, but we're, we're working on it. So hang close to that. But this is the time that Ed got arrested and he got arrested in new Orleans. So we'll talk about that and we'll talk kind of about what the story was going on. Cause it, it fits right into what he's doing at the time and how he's thinking. So it makes a lot of sense. And then the other storyline here is crazy. Mary. Because we get a version with Victoria Williams. That's her hometown. I believe she's from Louisiana. So it makes a whole lot of sense to do it. They only did it once beforehand. Maybe one other time. But they get Brendan O'Brien in on keys too. Which is another story. Because they have a little bit of a problem with their uh, keyboard that they're working on there. That takes a little bit of time from the show. But the performance of Crazy Mary is very notable. And the rest of the show is as well so that's what we got going on for next week 
So thank you all for listening in. If you're listening to this and you're not subscribed, then please subscribe. You can do it on the big platforms. You can do it on Apple. You can do it on Spotify. That's easy to find. But if you're listening to us on something else, then just subscribe and make sure you're getting notifications that our show is coming out every Wednesday. But you never know. We might have some surprises for you here and there. And if you are on these platforms and there is a rating system, then feel free. Go ahead and give us a rating. Five stars. As we say every week, we feel like we deserve it. That's up to you guys, but we're doing the hard work to put in for this to make this podcast what it is. And five stars seems good enough for me. And you can do that on Spotify. You can do that on Apple. I don't know about the other places. If you can do that, then please help us out. It'd be a big help. And on Apple, as we say every week, feel free, along with the rating, leave us a comment. And the comment goes a long way because it'll be for the next person that is looking for a Pearl Jam podcast. And hopefully that is looking to reconnect with some old memories from shows that they've been to. And uh, hopefully they enjoy what we have to say because we do the bit of the research and kind of go over some of the old memories. And that's that. So once you do the word of mouth thing, you're able to spread it. And that's kind of what we hope for this podcast and we hope it just continues to spread and spread and spread the love is spread throughout five years and what's another five without love being spread so thank you all for helping out on that aspect and here we'll close the show properly this may be the end we're here but not for much longer and although we may be parting ways miss you already miss you always all right new orleans next week guys let's talk a little bit about a bar fight nothing like a little destruction (laughs) 